0: And uh, I'm excited about it because uh, I love the idea of concluding something the same way that you started it. I mentioned this last week, but the poetic nature of ending in the same way you started. And this series allows us to do just that. Um, If this is your home church, you know that we have a theme every single year. And our theme for 2023 is every Promise. Uh, we've got a song that we wrote about it. I love how I throw myself into that equation. I helped write the song. It's not true. Uh, they got merch out there in the lobby. We've I've done series about it. We talked about it at our anniversary service. And that theme comes from a scripture in 2 Corinthians one twenty, where the Apostle Paul tells us that all of God's promises in Christ are yes and Amen. And as we stepped into 2023, we honestly believed that this was gonna be a year of answered prayers and fulfilled promises. And as I look back over the last 11 months, I can tell you this has been a year of answered prayers and fulfilled promises. As my own uh, testimony would would testify, my daughter's healing was a big, massive one for us. We've seen physical healings, we've seen financial miracles, we've seen children coming back to Christ, prodigal sons and daughters that have been out that are now coming in, names we've removed from this box, and things we've been praying for come to pass. It's been a, a year of miracles, and time and time again, God has proven to us that all of his promises over our lives are yes and amen. So it seems only appropriate then to conclude the year the same way we started, and to continue talking about promises, which is why we have titled this final series the greatest promise. And. That greatest promise, of course, being the one that was fulfilled in the coming of Christ some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem that we will celebrate during our Christmas services. And and I know I say this every time we get into a new series, and and I do mean it, I'm not just faking it, but I I really mean it this time. Um, I'm super excited about this series. (laughs) We know, Tim, I'm a hype guy. I get easily excited about anything. Like, if you need a hype guy in your rap video, just invite me, all right? I'll be like, yeah, in the background, I'm I'm that dude. But I'm, I'm really excited about this. This this series, if anyone has a rap video, please come introduce yourself to me afterwards. I would love to meet you. Uh, But uh, the reason I'm excited about this series is because it allows me to kind of tap into my life vision statement, the the reason I believe I'm on planet Earth. Years ago, and I've mentioned this before, but years ago, a friend of mine uh, who is a leader in the body of Christ came up to me and he said, Tim, if you had to, to state the vision for your life in just a few short words, what would that vision be? And admittedly, at the time, I I didn't know how to answer that question. I I had never really thought about it. I'm like, I think I know what I'm supposed to do. But he's like, no, just a very simple, concise statement, what would it be? And and perhaps if someone asked you that question this morning, you may not know how to answer it. and, and, And no judgment, I didn't know how to answer it as well. But whether or not we have an answer, God has a purpose for everybody's life in this room. You are not an accident. You are not here as the byproduct of two people having a passionate night together. You are here because God knew you before you were born. He has a unique plan and a unique purpose for every single person in this room. And the greatest source of fulfillment is discovering why God put you on this planet and getting busy with that purpose. I like to say it like this. The two greatest days of your life are the day you get saved and the day you discover why. And for me, I didn't know. My friend asks this question, and I'm just been processing through it. And finally, after a couple days, I come back to him, and I said, okay, I think I have an answer for you. I, I, I think I've got a vision statement, and it's this. I, Tim Biddle, I'm a gold digger. And he kind of cocked his head and looked at me, and he's like, I don't think you understood the question. And I said, no, 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 let me, let me explain. I love, there's nothing that brings me greater joy than seeing the gold unearthed in situations, then seeing beyond the surface of something and recognizing there's gold if you dig a little bit deeper. Seeing people that others have written off and said, ah, they're unusable, they're not worth the investment, but going, if I dig, if I invest a little bit of time, if I sift, I know that there's gold buried beneath the surface. Looking at situations that others would say are hopeless and saying, nah, it's not hopeless, because in God nothing is hopeless, and if we just dig and we stay the course, there's gold buried beneath the surface. Even in the practical realm, I love the idea of looking at a house or a piece of furniture or something that others would say, ah, it's not worth the investment, but going, no, If you dig, if you invest, there's gold if you're willing to mine it out. And I believe that God put me on planet Earth to do just that, to mine the gold out of every person I encounter, situation I encounter, environment I find myself in. I apologize to Kanye. Yes, I am saying I'm a gold digger. That's what I'm on the planet for. And so I tell my friend, this is my purpose. And as I think about this series, that miner mentality is gonna come in handy because for the next six weeks, We are going to be mining through the scriptures in hopes of finding Jesus. And that might sound like a simple task. Someone who's probably more educated than me would be like, hey, pastor, I can tell you where to find him. He's like in the Gospels. There's four of them. You just look there. He's there. There's red letters. It's easy to find. And I get that. Yes, he is in the Gospels. But he's not only in the Gospels. Nor is he only in the Gospels and the few cameos of red letters in Acts or the book of Revelation. Revelation. In fact, I would suggest he's not even contained to the entire collection of New Testament writings that followed his 33 years on this planet. The truth is, if we're willing to dig and we're willing to mine, if we're willing to search, we will find that Jesus is on every single page of this book, and he himself speaks to that truth in what will be our key text for this series where he says in John chapter five, verse 39 You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures, they actually point to me. What's interesting about this statement is that Jesus makes it before any of the New Testament was written. None of the New Testament writers had added a single uh, note, a a, a piece of pen, or pen to a piece of paper. In fact, many of them weren't even saved yet when Jesus made this statement. So when he says, if you search the scriptures, you'll recognize they all point to me, he's speaking of what we would know as the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, and the prophets. And yet Jesus says, if you look through the scriptures that were written before I ever showed up on the planet, you will notice that they, in fact, all do point to me. And so for the next few weeks, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to search the scriptures and discover that they all point to Jesus. Specifically, we're going to be looking at some individuals from the Old Testament, guys like David and Moses and Isaac, and we're going to see how their very lives served as a a foreshadowing, a prophetic announcement of the coming Messiah. But before we look at any of their lives, we need to spend a little bit of time today in this first installment uh, establishing a bit of a foundation, laying some groundwork for all we're going to discuss. And we need to answer this question, why did Jesus need to reveal himself in the Old Testament? And to answer that question, we kind of need to go back to the beginning, literally the first couple of pages of The Bible and the creation account and the fall of man, because it is there in the very beginning of the scriptures, the beginning of the world, that we discover why Jesus needed to introduce himself to creation. So, uh, before we go to the word, which we're gonna read a lot today, buckle up, um, but uh, I wanna pray and I wanna give you a, a title, a working title for this sermon. I wanna title this in the voice of Woody from Toy Story, if I could. And I wanna call this, There's a Lamb in the Garden. There's a snake in my boot. There's a lamb. All right, let's all say it together, shall we? There's a lamb in the garden. It's <laughs> yeah, about a B plus at best. I have a friend in the front row who's uh, from Brazil. Uh, I won't mention her name. It's Priscilla. She leads worship here. And uh, she has a horrible southern accent. So Priscilla, would you like to come and say it for, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's a lamb in the garden. Let's pray and then uh, we'll get into this. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it has the power to transform our lives. And every single week, it astounds me that you use the foolishness of preaching to bring people to an eternal hope. Today, we pray that that would take place in this room. As we search the scriptures, may we see the truth of what you stated in John 5. May we see Jesus today, all the way back in this first story of creation. And as we see you, as scripture tells us, We ask that we be transformed to be more like you. That that in beholding you, we would become more like you today. As it says in Psalm 119, May the entrance of your word bring light to all of those living in darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm working today with the assumption that most of us are probably familiar with the first two chapters of Genesis and kind of the creation account as we know it through Scripture. Uh, For anyone who's not, let me give you kind of the condensed uh, Cliff Notes version of creation. The Bible says that in the beginning the earth was formless and void. Nothing existed, darkness hovered over the waters, and God looked into this hopeless abyss, and he began to speak as creation took place. He said, let there be light, and as he said, let there be, light showed up, and stars, and moon, and and the oceans, and the land, and their boundaries, and all of the created things, they all came to being by the voice of God. And the climax of creation, his crown jewel on day six, he created us, human beings. And by the breath of his mouth and the dust of the earth, all of us were created. And in the Hebrew, the, the name given to humans was Adam, which means humanity, and Eve, which means life. You put them together, you've got human life. And in Genesis 128, we are told that this human life was created in the likeness and the image of God. And after God creates humans, he makes a home for them. In the east, a garden called Eden, he prepares a place, and he says, this is where you're going to live, and there is but one rule in the garden. You are allowed to eat from any of the trees, you can enjoy yourself, this vast, expansive space I've made for you, but there is one tree in the center of the garden you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from that tree, then you will surely die. Now, there's a lot we could draw from those first two chapters. In fact, I actually look forward to one day doing an entire series called Back to the Garden and unpacking all the little details of what that garden foreshadows in humanity. But that's not this series. We'll do that at another time. Today, I simply want to say this. After God created everything, on the the seventh day, it says he rested. He looked around at all of his creation. He said, it's all good. It's good. The garden's good. Humans are good. That weird armadillo animal is good. Everything is good. And we get kind of a picture into this carefree existence of humanity at the final verse in Genesis chapter two where we read this. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. If you're looking for a life verse, I offer Genesis 2.25 today. It's all yours. Get it tattooed right there on your arm. They were naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is not a statement of like their pride. It's not like they were doing push-ups and they were really proud of how they looked in their birthday suit, like, hey girl, how you doing? That's not what he's saying. This is a statement of intimacy. It's saying everything was exposed, nothing was hidden, and there was this beautiful communion and fellowship between God and his creation, the way that he intended it from the beginning. But all of that is about to change in the very next verse. As we go on to read in chapter three, it says the serpent, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? By, by the way, pause here. Every time I read this part of the story, I immediately think to myself, how is she not freaked out that a snake is talking to her? Like, was it just normal for humans to communicate with animals in the garden? And if so, do we get to talk to animals again in heaven? Because if so, that would be really, really awesome. How would it be down to talk to an elephant or something like that? That'd be, could be great. Throw that little theological bomb out there for you to think through. All right. Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it because if you do, you will die. You're not gonna die, the servant replied to the woman, for God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. Because what man can resist fruit from his naked wife? At that moment, (laughs) their eyes were opened. And suddenly, they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The cool evening breezes were blowing. The man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from him among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, Where are you at? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. We're gonna stop there for a couple of moments and kind of unpack these verses. Within that first portion of chapter three, we see not only how sin entered the world, but we see why sin entered the world. And consequently, we see why Jesus needed to reveal himself even from the beginning of time. But I think if we can put on our miner's hats and do a little bit of digging, we will also discover that there's some other people in that garden. It's not just Adam and Eve, it's all of us. This is not just their story, this is our story. As their prophetic names declare, human life, you and I are also found in this garden. And so before we do the work to discover Jesus in the garden, I think it would be wise of us to first discover ourselves in the garden, because I don't think we can see Jesus appropriately until we see ourselves appropriately in this story. So for a couple of moments today in this first session, I want us to look at this story and ask, where do I see myself in the garden? As I look at the story, I see myself in a few different aspects, a few different instances that take place throughout the narrative. And the first of them is this. When I look at the garden, I realize that we get deceived. Just like Adam and Eve, we get deceived. Look again at this appeal from the, the serpent. He says, "'You won't die if you eat the fruit,' the serpent replied to the woman, "'for God knows that your eyes will be opened.'" as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. Underlined and bold for a reason. That's really important language, and I want to lean into this for just a moment. The serpent says to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God, which is a tempting offer. Like, Who wouldn't want to be like God? Of course, we would all want to be like God. But there's a problem with this offer. And the fundamental problem with this offer is that the enemy is offering something Eve already possesses. She's already like God. Let me prove it. I mentioned this scripture earlier, but I will read it so that you don't have to take my word for it. But in the creation account, Genesis 1, look what we read. So then God said, let us make human beings in our image to what? To be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So according to the scriptures, Adam and Eve were already like God. According to the scriptures, you and I are already like God. We are fashioned in his image and in his likeness. When he made the human beings, he made them like him, which means that the enemy is offering something here that they don't need. They already have it. Like ice to an Eskimo, he's peddling something that they shouldn't be interested in. Yet they are. Because that is the deceptive nature of of sin. Sin starts with a lie that tells you you don't have something that you already possess. And when we buy into that lie, it baits us into compromise. I love this quote from the creator of Alpha and pastor of New uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, uh, Nicky Gumbel. He says it like this. He says, You will always swallow a lie before you swallow forbidden fruit. There's a line right there. You will always swallow a lie before you swallow the forbidden fruit. And it's so true. And here's what I find mind-numbingly frustrating about this. We keep buying into the same lie over and over again. The enemy packages it slightly differently and presents it to us. But like they did in the garden, we just keep eating on this rotten fruit that we shouldn't be unwise enough to bite into. But ultimately it's the same lie being offered over and over and over again. Here's the lie that sin peddles to us. You sift all sin down and here's what you'll find. It tells you you are not enough or what you have is not enough. All sin falls into that category. You are not enough or what you have is not enough. Seriously, pick a sin, pick any sin, and it'll fall into one of those categories if you sift it down. Pride and arrogance. Pride puffs itself up, it postures, why? Because on the inside, it thinks it's not enough. You have to make yourself feel big on the outside because you're truly small on the inside, and so I'm gonna present a version of myself, make myself feel bigger than the others around me, because deep down, I don't think that I'm enough. That's what Ken learned in the Barbie movie. Until he realized that he was knuff, right? You've seen the, 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 the merchandise. There's that lie. It's right there in the middle of it. Or how about addiction? What is addiction? The, the compulsive nature to, to take something into yourself because you think that what you currently have cannot truly satisfy Whether it's a substance addiction or it's to purchase things or to look at things, it's I don't know how to be satisfied with what's already in me. I don't have enough, so I have to feed that desire with other things. Same lie. How about a lack of generosity or an unwillingness to give according to Scripture? It's rooted in the same thing. If I give this away, I will not have enough for myself, so I'm going to cling to my possessions and cling to my money because if I don't, then I won't be able to have what I need. Sexual sin. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know how to be satisfied in and of myself. I don't want to be single, but I haven't found the one, so I'm going to feed my flesh because I don't think that just me and Jesus together are enough. I need something else to fill this need. Unbiblical divorce. I'm just throwing all kinds of fun things out there today. The one I have is not enough. I would be happier with someone else even if that someone else was just myself. And because I don't think I have enough, I'm gonna break the covenant I made according to scripture and I'm gonna leave for irreconcilable differences. You sift all sin down, it will find itself in the garden with that same lie. I am not enough or I don't have enough. But it is a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell and the dirty snake that told it in the beginning. Because according to scripture, you are enough and you do have enough. And if you needed more, God would provide it to you because you're His children and He's a good father, according to Scripture. <laughs> Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6. He said, Only the pagans worry about all the things they don't have. Whether or not they're gonna be able to eat or, dr- or have enough to wear, that's a pagan fear, not a godly fear. Your heavenly Father already knows what you need. And if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything you need is going to be added unto you. That's the truth. Anything less is a lie. But it's a lie we keep feeding on over and over and over again. And when we feed on that lie, it gives birth to the very next place in this story where we see ourselves. When we feast on a lie, number two, we feel shame. We feel shame. Look again at what we read in verse six where it says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame. Suddenly, out of nowhere, A foreign feeling invades in the moment. They feel shame. The the enemy says, hey, eat this, and if you do, you will be like God. So they eat. But instead of getting what the enemy promised, because they already had it, they're rewarded with something that is utterly and entirely unlike God. Shame. Deception gave birth to sin, And sin gives birth to shame. I was studying out this phrase in the original Hebrew language this week, the the, the statement that they felt shame. And I was surprised to discover that it's a phrase that's used in a variety of different instances throughout the scriptures. But as I dug into this particular instance, I also found that it has a very inconvenient definition here in the garden. When we're told that Adam and Eve felt shame, in the Hebrew, this literally means an inability to unknow. A haunting reminder. I can't not know what I know now. A present reminder of my past failure. I love the way that the the prophet Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. He refers to it like this. He calls it the crimson stain. Shame is like the crimson stain that we can't look away from. Let me just ask, anybody ever stained your clothing before? Anyone? Okay. Anyone stain your clothing all the time? Okay. (laughs) My hand is lifted. I I know I look like an adult, but I think I eat like a five-year-old because... And I'm not exaggerating. Sometimes preachers exaggerate. My wife can attest to this truth. I stain my clothing probably weekly, all right? Like every single week I spill dressing or oil or sauce or something on myself. Like I was telling somebody this morning, they were complimenting this shirt. I'm like, it's just a T-shirt. But I, was, I had to confess. I'm like, the reason I bought this shirt is because there's some kind of like Teflon on the outside so that if you spill on yourself, it just falls. It's resorted to that. I have to buy safety clothing just to make sure that I don't stain myself. I'm, I'm staining everything, and I used to, I used to just go to Robin and and ask like, "Hey, babe, I'm sorry. Oops, I did it again. And will you will you get this stain out of my clothing?" And she'd roll her eyes because she knows that it's a weekly occurrence, but. To be truthful, I've become a bit ashamed of myself lately because it happens all, stop laughing at me Jazzy. Uh, It happens all the time. So I've developed this really bad habit where like if I spill something on myself and I don't wanna tell Robin about it, I just sorta like, I fold my clothes up and then I like set it on the nightstand or I put it in the drawer like thinking it's gonna magically disappear or sometimes I'll just throw it in the wash and hope that it just comes out in the wash. But how many know what happens if you leave a stain on your garment for too long. It sets, yeah, that's the phrase. It fastens itself to the fibers of the garment and it refuses to let go. When you don't deal with it right away, it stays. And before you know it, you will have something that looks like this. Now, to be clear, this is for illustrative purposes only. This is not a shirt I was recently wearing at a meal. I need you to know that, all right? Like, I do spill, yeah, yeah, yeah. I eat like a werewolf. (laughs) Ha, 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 and it gets everywhere. But this, this is a visual of shame. This is what shame looks like in the spirit. It's this blaring reminder of failure. If I were to pull this shirt out of the closet, and look at it, I would immediately be reminded of the moment where I spilled something all over myself. Even if it had been a week, a month, a year, the second I saw that stain, the memory would come rushing back in and my failure would feel like it was present. And this is how shame works. You might be able to go for a season without thinking about it and experience a taste of freedom like we were talking about last weekend, But then the second that person's name comes up or that situation arises or a word that reminds you of the thing triggers, suddenly all that shame comes rushing back into your heart and it becomes this present reminder of your past failure. That's shame. Shame is the stain of sin. And if we do not deal with shame, we will find ourselves doing the very next thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. Instead of coming to God or to Robin, asking them to remove the stain, we'll do what they did. We hide. We run and we hide from God. Like a child trying to keep from their parents the shirt that they stained, and by child I mean me, we hide. Look at what we read once again in the eighth verse. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And then look at this question. God says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that, the Lord asked. Interesting question, where once Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, now they're on the Discovery Channel. They're naked and afraid. (laughs) These are the jokes, people. You either laugh at them, (laughs) it's a way homer for somebody, pull it out of your pocket. Oh, okay, I get it, yeah. They're afraid, and so what do they do? They run and they hide. I think one of the most ironic and subsequently tragic things about shame is that shame causes you to run and hide from the only one who is actually capable of dealing with the stain. What a twisted ploy of the enemy to push you away from the source The one that can truly address the issue, but we run and we hide, thinking, "Ah, if he sees this, he's going to be angry. He's going to judge me. And I think that there are so many people, even in the church, who are presently living at a self-imposed distance from God because this is what they look like in the spirit. They are constantly reminded of their failure and the shame of sin is causing them to run and hide. And maybe that even defines some of us in the room today. Yeah, you might be physically present in church. See, It's easy to maintain the appearance of nearness, but in your heart to feel distant from God. And maybe that is how some of us feel today. But if so, can I ask you for just a couple of seconds here to lean into this question that God asks Adam and Eve in the garden? I think this is a very revealing question. He asks them, who told you that you were naked? I think contained in that question is both the heart of God and the aim of his anger. Who told you you were naked? God is not asking this question to obtain information. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Sin is never a surprise to God. He knew this whole thing was going to unravel the way it did before it ever happened. Newsflash to you, when you come to God and you repent, you are not informing him of your sin. Hey God, I did this thing. He's like, what? No, he's God. He knew, he was waiting for you to acknowledge that he already knew so that you could come and receive the grace that you needed in that time of failure. That's the whole purpose of this thing. So so God is not asking this question of Adam and Eve so that he can gather intel and go, okay, how am I gonna deal with this? No, it's not it at all. Rather, I believe that God asks Adam and Eve this question to reveal his art, to show the aim of his anger, and to remind them and everyone who would come in their footsteps of a truth that we've heard before, but we need to be reminded of from time to time, and it's this. It's a simple one, but it's powerful. God hates sin but he loves sinners. Think about it. God could have said a lot of things to Adam and Eve after this moment, couldn't he? He could have been like, what? After all I've done for you? I literally created the world for you. I made that giraffe for you. I made this tree for you. The waterways, all of this was for the two of you guys. And I gave you but one rule, don't eat from the tree. And you did the one thing I told you not to do. He could have said that. Or he could have been like, I'm so disappointed in you. I, 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 I expected more from you. I just Let's keep our distance for a little bit while I figure out what I'm going to do with you. He could have said all of those things. And some people think that that is what God says. But he didn't say any of those things. Instead, he chased them down in their place of hiding and he poses this question. Who told you you were naked? Translation, it wasn't me. I didn't tell you that. I don't use shame to call you out of hiding so that I can backhand you on the other side of it. I don't shame you into obedience. I love you into obedience. Can't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, patient God is? Can't you see that it's his kindness and his love that leads us to a place of change? I love you. On your good days, on your bad days. Whether you've sown figs to try to cover yourself or you're fully exposed, I love you all the same. Sin, yeah, I hate that. And especially the guy who tempted you into it. But you I love. And I always will. Come on, how many grateful today that you serve a God that does not backhand you in your times of failure but reaches down into the pit that you dug for yourself and draws you out again and says, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. Nothing can separate you from my love. Come on, Romans chapter eight. Can't you see that nothing will separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor nothing in creation will separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. That's your God. He chases you down in times of failure, grabs you by your face and says, I love you. That's who he is. But as the musical prophets John Mayer and DC Talk declare, there's a throwback for somebody. Love is a verb. It's more than a feeling. It requires some action. And the action that love demanded in the garden is found in the very title of the sermon, we're preaching together today. The love we see in the garden is displayed by a lamb. The lamb in the garden. When deception gave birth to sin, and sin gave birth to shame, and shame gave birth to hiding, look at what God does. It says this in chapter three, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, garments of animal skins and clothed them. When Adam and Eve hid because of the shame of sin, God provided an animal skin. It's like a nursery rhyme. I don't think this was the one, this is a modern version of the animal skin, the 2023 bougie version. I have this animal skin. It's the only one I had. But God chased them down, and when they felt ashamed, like their only choice was to hide, God said, give me your shame, give me your stain, and I will give you a covering. I'll cover what you hate about yourself so that you don't have to feel exposed before me any longer. And the last time I checked, there's only one way to get the skin off of an animal. Psalms got to die. When deception gave birth to sin, and sin gave birth to shame, and shame gave birth to hiding, God's solution was to murder an animal in the garden and shed its blood so that a covering could be made for the sinner and shame could be covered. Ladies and gentlemen, we have found Jesus. Here he is in the beginning of time in the garden. (laughs) Hidden away for those that are willing to do the work and dig him out. He is the lamb that gave its blood in a garden so that a covering could be provided for broken humanity. As John declared, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. As Isaiah prophesied, he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter but didn't even say a word. As it says in Revelation, he is the Lamb who sits on the throne. As the saints and the elders declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto the Lamb who sits on the throne. But before John ever heralded him, before Isaiah prophesied about him, before Revelation revealed him, Adam and Eve encountered him in the garden as the one who gave his life and shed his blood so that their sin could be covered and their shame could be erased. He's the skin in the garden. He's the lamb. And as we've said all morning, this is not just a story about two guys in the Old Testament. This is your story. This is my story. We are there in the garden alongside of the failures of Adam and Eve. We deserved to hide away in shame But our God loved us so much that he left his home in heaven and he chased us down in our hiding here on earth. And he called to every person who would be hidden away in shame saying, come and let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as wool. Though they are crimson, I will make them white as snow. I'm offering you a garment of grace in exchange for your shame. All you gotta do is come out of hiding and I've made it available to you. This is the gospel. It's the good news woven into the creation story if we're willing to dig and see it. And now that we've found ourselves in this garden, there remains but one task, a question that we need to pose to ourselves. And with that, I'll invite the worship team to come as we prepare to conclude. But today, as we land, I want to ask this question of us that God asked in the garden to Adam and Eve. Again, a question he already knew the answer to, but a question that allows us to self-assess and determine how best to apply this lamb in the garden. And, And here it is. Where are you? As you consider your relationship with God today, where are you? Are you in a Genesis 225 place where you're naked and unashamed before God? And by that, I mean, there's nothing hidden. You can worship with freedom, you can pray with freedom. You you feel like there's nothing driving a wedge between you and God, the relationship is good. Or do you find yourself on the other side of that continuum at a distance, hiding away in shame because you're afraid is ready to take you out and judge you for what you've done. Where are you at? And to be clear, I don't don't mean, are you in church? Because you are. I don't mean, do you read the Bible occasionally or pray? Do you have the appearance of faith? Because scripture tells us that it is entirely possible to honor God with our lips while our hearts remain far from him. So I'm asking you today, where is your heart at? Is your heart distant from God? or is there intimacy there? Because if you find yourself hidden away in shame, then my offer to you is to make an exchange, to give him your shame and to take his covering in exchange. He loved the whole world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not have to walk around like this, but could be covered by the lamb that's in the garden. Amen? Let's pray jesus thank you thank you for revealing yourself in the scriptures thank you for making a way even from the beginning of time for us to be covered to erase the stain of shame i pray that this would be more than concept more than ideas but it would be a felt reality for every person in the room today as I was praying this week and just considering this moment just started to pray over some specific situations where people might be carrying shame I saw a picture of somebody who has been divorced and they're ashamed by the events that led to that divorce and God would say shame off of you today someone who had enough affair and maybe he's been living in secret about it God's saying, come out of hiding. Just let it out. I already know that shame is is more than you can bear. You were not fashioned to carry that shame. Only I can. Prayed for an image of someone I saw who had an abortion maybe when you were younger and been living with the shame of that. Someone who left their children, and let someone else raise them. There's a myriad of circumstances where you could be carrying shame but God would say over you today, shame off you, shame off you, shame off you, shame off you. Receive my garment of grace. Receive my garment of grace. Father, today we receive. We receive this free gift. And maybe there's someone in the room this morning who would say, hey, Tim, I, I, um, I feel like I'm, I'm in that hiding space because I don't know the God that's looking for me. I didn't know what to expect. All I've heard and all I've seen, maybe even represented by churches and the public persona of Christians sometimes is that God is shaking a fist and he's angry at me. But you're telling me that there's a God that loves me, that wants me to hand over my life and he'll give me purpose. That's the true God and that is the true gospel. And maybe today you need to make a decision to follow Christ today, to make that lamb in the garden, the Lord of your life. And As we do every single week here, I want to issue an invitation. If you're far from God today and you don't want to stay in that space, I want to pray a simple prayer of commitment with you today. The words are not important. The condition of your heart is the most important thing. But in this moment, you can come out of hiding and know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that your eternity is secure. And today, if you're, you're in that space, you need to commit your life to Jesus. No one looking around, every head bowed and eye closed. Would you just slip up a hand and look at me and say, Tim, I need to pray that prayer along with you this morning. I need to come to Jesus today. Got you, bro. Thank you. Yeah, got you, man. I'm right there. Hallelujah. Yeah, got you here. Sorry. Missed you. Oh, right on. You too, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. All right. Anybody else? Three, two, one. All right. Here's what we're going to do. I wanna pray with all of those making this decision. In church, we don't want them to feel alone, so we're gonna pray with them out loud. and Just repeat after me. Everyone say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin and erase my shame. May I be your child, your disciple, and walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I love the preemptive clap, already celebrating. Come on, let's celebrate with the angels for all those coming home to Jesus today. Hallelujah. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.